Father, your word says there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Father, we recognize by the very revelation of yourself in the person of Jesus Christ that you don't want us to stay in the dark, that you like to bring things to light, that you want us to know and be aware of your great plan. And Father, tonight as you unfold some things before us, I'm I'm excited. I feel as though we're on the precipice of some great truths. And in fact, Father, I, I know in Matthew 13 there are big truths, some big epic truths, and there are some smaller truths, both of which have much to do with how we're living our lives right now. With what we're looking forward to, with what we look back at, and with where we are. And for all of that, Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that You are the same yesterday, and today, and forever. We find great comfort in Your faithfulness and Your constancy. We ask tonight that as You reveal truths to us, that we would nestle deeper into who You are, Lord Jesus. We would come even more under Your authority if if that's possible, Lord, for us to to step deeper in, further under Your cover, and more in submission to You as our Lord and Savior. And we ask and invite Your Holy Spirit to speak fresh words to us, to open our eyes to things anew, to warn us where appropriate, and to keep us safe, Father. Most of all, help us to see You better, Jesus. And know You more in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Gospel according to Matthew, as you know by now, is the Gospel of the Kingdom. It's the Kingdom Gospel. That's the focus of Matthew. As he, as he expresses the things of Jesus, as the Holy Spirit speaks through Matthew... To you and to me, even today, the whole point of the Gospel is the Kingdom. That we might be aware of the Kingdom. And and Jesus has brought the Kingdom to the people. He came proclaiming the Kingdom. And the Gospel is all about that. Some even call the Gospel of Matthew the key book in all the Scriptures to unlocking the mysteries of the Kingdom. To understanding the Kingdom better. And if that's the case, if Matthew is the key book in the entire Bible for opening up the kingdom, the key to the key is Matthew 13. Now I'll tell you what's wonderful to me about studying through the Word as we've been doing. I've said before that many times I'm just a couple of days ahead. You know, I'm running across new things that I had never seen before and experiencing things in, in my own study that I'm just barely getting when I'm standing up to present them to you. It's the whole kindergarten kindergartner teaching a college class thing and so I rely on the Holy Spirit to bring truth to us but I, I have been amazed at this chapter excited and, and amazed at the things that I've read I've heard some of these parables over and over in my life I've never heard them this way before never seen them this way and so I hope to bring to you what I believe the Lord has shown me over the last week that as we come to Matthew 13 we see it as the key chapter in this book then everything else flows out of this. What Jesus is going to teach us about the kingdom is the, is the key to understanding the whole Gospel of Matthew. Now, Bible students, you may want to note some things here. Matthew records three major kingdom discourses. Three major sections in Matthew where Jesus sits down and begins to teach, and they're heavy on the kingdom. 
The first one we've already studied, Matthew 5-7, through the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus reaches back to the old law of the past, and He raises it up and compares it to the principles of the kingdom, the higher principles, more than just keeping law. Jesus says it's a deeper, more personal thing than, than you thought possible. The Sermon on the Mount, that, that law of the past, that's the first kingdom discourse. The second kingdom discourse, which we come to tonight, is Matthew 13, that you could call the mystery parables, which look at the spiritual kingdom of the present. What Jesus is describing and talking about, for the most part in Matthew 13, is not the kingdom to come, it's the kingdom present, right now. As He taught it, it was the kingdom that was about to be birthed after His death and resurrection and ascension when the apostles gathered together there on that day of Pentecost and the spiritual kingdom began to unfold. And that's what Jesus is going to explain to us in the mystery parables tonight, Matthew 13. The third kingdom discourse of Jesus in the book of Matthew will come across in Matthew 24 and 25. Sometimes it's called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus gave it on the Mount of Olives. It was in that last week prior to His death. And on the Mount of Olives there, Jesus looks ahead to the future kingdom. In the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, again, He looks at the return of the kingdom, the future kingdom, and the actual millennial kingdom that's going to be set up on the earth at the return of the great King. So you might want to just think about those things, remember those things. The Sermon on the Mount is number one, the Mystery Parables number two, and the Olivet Discourse number three, Matthew 5 through 7. Matthew 13, and then finally Matthew 24 and 25. Matthew takes these and groups these into three very important sections. Now in the book of Matthew, after detailing the story of the birth of the king and the testing of the king, Matthew tells us that Jesus the king comes on the scene by the way prepared by John the Baptist. Do you remember the first thing out of Jesus' mouth? The same thing that John the Baptist was crying out. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Prior, or just following that, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught the higher kingdom principles. Following the Sermon on the Mount, He sends out the disciples as ambassadors of the kingdom out to speak about and talk about and, and call forth people to hear about the kingdom. At that same time, Jesus began performing great miracles, awesome power, signs and wonders, His power over disease. His power over the elements, and even His power over the spiritual realm, demonstrating in all these things that He had the authority as the King. That He was the King. You know, sometimes in our our study of the life of Christ, we think that it was haphazard. That He was just here for three years, and, you know, 33, but He did His ministry for three years, and just the chips kind of fell where they may. And He ended up dead at the end of that, and then resurrected and went back home, and, and now we're left to kind of pick up the pieces and figure out what happened. That is not the case. Jesus very clearly came to establish Himself as the King. To reveal the Kingdom to the people of Israel. And had they accepted the Kingdom the first time around, it would have at that point immediately come into effect His authority on earth. Now the Lord knew that wasn't going to happen. He knew how the people were going to respond. The stiff-necked Jewish people, His people, His chosen ones, who had rebelled and rejected numerous times over the years, He knew it was going to happen again. And so after all these things, we see in chapter 12 that callous denial of the Jewish leaders, looking at the king who has proclaimed the kingdom and shown proof of the kingdom, and they reject him outright. At that point, Jesus hands down a heavy judgment on the cities that outwardly rejected him. But we come to chapter 13 and ask the question, what happened then? 
What happened next? To the kingdom rejected. Clearly it could not be established at Jesus' first coming because the people of the kingdom said, no, we don't want it. Not that way. Not your way. Heading into chapter 13, Jesus begins to shift gears. And now, rather than talking about and presenting the kingdom at hand, the kingdom that would be now set aside, He starts talking about the spiritual kingdom. He begins to reveal the as yet unknown mystery of what He calls the kingdom of heaven. Now you need to understand, the kingdom of heaven is not talking about some ethereal kingdom off in the clouds somewhere. When Jesus uses the phrase kingdom of heaven, He is very specific, as I think you'll see clearly tonight. He's talking about the spiritual state of things during this age, in the interval between His suffering then and His glory to come. And to express this mystery kingdom, He uses mystery teaching. He begins to teach in parables. Remember Sunday we talked about this. The Greek word for parable is parabolo, or parabole, and para being alongside, valo meaning to throw, and it means to throw a known truth alongside an unknown truth so that the unknown truth can be understood. Taking a, a physical, tangible thing like the sower and the soils and saying the kingdom of heaven is like this. And as you consider those four soils like we did on Sunday, you begin to see, oh, he's talking about the heart. He's talking about the readiness of the heart to accept the truth of the kingdom. It's fascinating to me that Jesus taught in parables, especially because we were told ahead of time he would. The prophecy came down a thousand years prior to Jesus. Psalm 78, verse 1. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wondrous works that He has done. I will open my mouth in a parable. This is the Spirit of Jesus Christ speaking through the psalmist. I will open my mouth in a parable. The parabolic teaching of Rabbi Yeshua is prophetic fulfillment of this very psalm. As Jesus comes along and begins to speak in mysteries. Now again, if you were here Sunday, you already heard the first of Jesus' parables there in Matthew 13. You can flip over there now. Matthew 13 in the first nine verses. And we looked at that and talked about what that meant. And we looked then further to verse 18 through 23 where Jesus explains the parable of the sower. We kind of skipped a section there and that's where I want to pick it up tonight. Because we left one big question unanswered on Sunday. And Jesus answers it for us. The question is, why did Jesus speak to them in parables? Why talk in parables at all? Why the sudden shift from clear didactic teaching in the Sermon on the Mount now to these mysterious stories. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. I never have. The fact that all of a sudden, halfway through the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus starts talking in mystery. He hasn't up till now. The Sermon on the Mount was pretty clear. His teaching to this point has been very clear. Here's the deal. Here's what you need to do. These are what citizens of the kingdom look like. It's clear, obvious teaching. Anyone can follow it and go, okay, I get what you're saying. But then all of a sudden, he starts speaking mystery. He starts talking in a way that the people are left standing there going, Huh? Did you get that? Did you know what he was talking about? His own followers will get him alone in the house and go, "Um, What did that mean? I don't have a clue. We're curious. What are you telling us? Listen to Jesus' answer. His disciples came to him in verse 10. And they said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? 
Jesus answered and said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. And once again, many times in the scriptures, I find myself saying in the flesh, that's not fair. The person that has gets more, and the person, even what he has, that doesn't have much, gets that taken away? Well, it's not democratic. That's not right. How does this work? And why is it that some get to understand the parables, while others don't? These twelve insiders get to ask the question, and they get the full explanation and the teaching, while the Galilean outsiders had to figure it out for themselves. A couple of things to note about Jesus' mystery parables. Number one, Jesus' parables always welcomed the initiated. His parables welcomed the initiated. Look again at verse 11. He says, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. The key word there is mysteries. It's the Greek word musterion. It doesn't mean something vague, it's something esoteric or unsolvable. The word mystery there means exactly what it means to us. A mystery is something we know there's an answer for. And we can't wait to find out what it is. Mystery novels always end up with some kind of resolution or revelation. Otherwise, we wouldn't read them. Can you imagine spending a week pouring over a great like Agatha Christie novel and getting to the end of it and she leaves you hanging? There's no answer. Who done it? We don't know. Go buy the next book. You wouldn't read very many mysteries before you start putting them away because they don't give you any answer. A mystery is something that there is a secret answer for. A hidden answer that's going to be revealed. And we all want to know the answers to the mysteries. Amos chapter 3 verse 7 says, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless He reveals His secret counsel to His servants the prophets. That's pretty amazing. God can do whatever He wants, but He determined as He did these things to be about revelation. To not move without letting the prophets know. We saw that all the way back with Abraham. You remember when God was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? What did He do? He said, are we going to do this and not let Abraham know what's going on? The Lord wants to reveal what He's doing. He wants to share what He's doing. He's always been about that. Daniel 2.28, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. So when Jesus says to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, those mysteries are something God wants to reveal. He's not trying to hide it because He doesn't want people to know. The parables welcomed the initiated. And the revelation of these mysteries are always for those who are initiated. What do you mean by that? Turning your Bibles over to Ephesians chapter 3. Keep your finger in Matthew 13. Ephesians chapter 3. Paul explains this so well. He says, For this reason I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles... If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, musterion, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which other generations, in other generations, was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, 
that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the mystery. That's the mystery. That the Gentiles actually were going to be brought in, grafted in, Paul says in another place, Romans 11. Brought into the kingdom as part of it. That's the great mystery that none of the Jewish people knew before. The prophets didn't understand that before. It hadn't been revealed. It was a hidden truth, a mystery revealed in these last days. And he said, Of this I was made a minister, verse 7, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of His power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known, revealed. The mystery, now we get it. There's resolution. Made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in Him we have boldness and confident, listen, confident access through faith in Him. That's the initiated. The initiated are those who have access through faith to Jesus. Once you have access to Jesus, the mysteries are revealed. It makes sense. It begins to fall into place. You start to get understanding you never had before. But you have to have that access through faith in Jesus. Bold and confident access, Paul says, but it is by faith in Christ. Listen, Jesus stands ready to initiate anybody who's willing to express faith. He's not playing a game. He's not keeping it hidden, saying, oh, I pick you and maybe I'll pick you. He's saying, if you come to me in faith, I'll share everything with you. If you express faith in me, I will give answers to you. He'll initiate anyone who comes to him by faith. He'll take anyone into his confidence who comes to him believing. Jesus truly wants to be, brace yourselves, he truly wants to be your friend. Now, for at least one of our elders, this is hard to, hard to swallow, and it's not Harlan, so you're okay tonight. It's hard to swallow the concept of God as friend. It's almost too personal. And yet, Jesus said in John 15, 15, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. It's a mystery to the slave. But I have called you friends. For all the things I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. I have revealed it all. Those are the initiated, the friends of Jesus. Access to Jesus through faith. He says in verse 12 of Matthew 13, Whoever has, to him more shall be given. And he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. What's he talking about there? He's talking about faith. Plug faith into that verse. Whoever has faith, guess what? You're going to get more. But if you don't have faith, even the little bit that you might pretend to have is going to be taken away. You're going to lose it. Come to Jesus in faith. He will always increase it. Come to Jesus lacking faith. Come to Jesus is cynical or critical or contemptuous or challenging Him. And you may very well be weeded out, which is exactly the second reason why Jesus taught in parables, both then and today. Jesus' parables weeded out the indifferent. They welcomed the initiated, bringing in those who would be friends of Jesus, but the parables were also taught and spoken to weed out people who were indifferent to faith in Christ. 
People who didn't want to have... Jesus drew a line in the sand. He drew a line in the sand between the initiated faith and indifferent rejection. He explains it more in verse 13. He says, Therefore I speak to them in parables. Because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah, and he's quoting now Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you'll keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, otherwise they would see with their eyes, and hear what there is, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. You might say, well, wait a minute, doesn't God want to heal us? Isn't that part of the deal? Isn't He calling out, come to me and and, and I will heal you? Listen, the Lord wants to heal, but never against your consent. He's not going to come crashing into your life and force healing on you. He's not going to force faith on you. He's not going to take a person in rebellion and go, please, please, please. He's going to put the truth out there and say, do you want this? Will you accept me? Will you take this? He will not violate the personal choice we all have to turn from our indifference and become initiated friends of Jesus. In other words, faith gang, faith increases faith. Doubt deepens doubt. The more you come to faith, come to Jesus in faith, the bigger it gets, the more He gives you. I think about things that I have to believe Him for today versus things I had to believe Him for 10 years ago. If I had to believe Him 10 years ago for the things He's showing me in my life today, I don't think I could have done it. But you know what? 10 years ago, I came to Jesus in faith. And now, there's more faith. And it just continues to increase and compound. Those of you who are new in your walk with Jesus, guess what? It gets better and better and better. Not easier, but your faith gets deeper and richer and stronger. As you come to Him in faith, saying, increase my faith, man, He does it. And He'll take you to some weird places to do it, but He does it. But doubt deepens doubt. The more I doubt Jesus, the more doubting a person I'm going to be. The more I'm cynical, the more cynical I become. And Jesus quotes from Isaiah, drawing this old prophecy right to this very point in history as the literal fulfillment of that prophecy. As I said before, up to this point, Jesus has spoken very clearly. Now He speaks in parables. And the people, just as the prophecy said, the people will keep on hearing, but they're not going to understand. They're going to keep seeing miracles happen, but they're not going to perceive that the miracle worker is the king. Exactly as Isaiah said, this begins to happen in a tragic way there in Israel and would continue to happen in our world. Why is that? Because it's not for a lack of information that people don't believe. Uh, This is kind of a broken record thing for me. It's for indifference. People don't reject Jesus because they don't have the info. Because there's not enough proof. People reject God because they don't want to accept Him. It's not an information issue or a facts issue. It's a rebellion issue. And that's at the bottom line. Paul even says that the, all the facts needed basically to believe in a loving God you can see just by looking around in creation. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Everything is there. Open your eyes. And you can see His invisible quality and eternal nature just by looking at creation if you'll just take a look. That's the point of the parables. To welcome the initiated by faith and to weed out those who are indifferent to faith. Jesus is doing both. 
Now, turning back to the initiated apostles in verse 16, he says, But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Peter will say in a later place, man, they searched to understand and to know at what time the Spirit of Christ within them was going to make all these things happen. In other words, as the prophets were prophesying. Talk about the Hebrew prophets. Much of what they prophesied, they would say it and then go, I don't get it. I know what I just said. I can even write it down in a scroll and present it to the people. But if the people are asking me, what exactly does this mean? How is it going to play out? Most of the prophets would go, I don't know, he just told me to say it. I'm just the mouthpiece, man. I have no idea. Amazing. Amazing that the prophets and righteous men did not see or hear. Now you might ask, well, didn't they have enough faith? Well, they have plenty of faith. The problem was the timing. Because the mystery is never revealed early on in the novel. Otherwise, the novel really wouldn't be worth reading, would it? So early in the story, his story, he doesn't reveal the mystery. He gives the clues. He gives the hints. He begins to give the prophecies. And it wouldn't be until Jesus came that they began to have fulfillment and began to be seeable. The Lord told Daniel in in the key book in the Old Testament, the key prophecy book, Daniel, he said in chapter 12, verse 4, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. That was 500 plus years before Jesus came along. Daniel got this amazing prophecy, astounding information, absolutely accurate, but he was told to seal it up. Why? Because if Daniel shared all the things the Lord told him at that point, nobody would have gotten it. There was no context for it. There was no framework for understanding what Daniel was talking about. Only now can we look back historically and see exactly what he was talking about. I'll give you an example. Daniel chapter 2. Penelope was just asking me today about do we have any recordings of Daniel. I talked through Daniel several years ago before we started the bridge and it's not recorded and I'm dying to get back to it. Teach it again. An amazing book. Those of you who took the Beth Moore study, you may recall this, but in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a statue. And this statue has a, has a big gold head, and then it has, what color were the arms and, and shoulders? Was it bronze? And then the belly? Shoulders were silver. Belly was bronze, legs were iron, and then the feet were mixed iron and clay. So you remember all that. Now at the time, you look at that and go, what in the world is he talking about? And Daniel even implies, the Lord implies through Daniel, these would be nations that would rise up. But it still makes no sense until we look back and we see the head of gold is clearly Babylon. We see the, the arms, that, that, the silver arms, the shoulders, the Medes and the Persians. And we can watch this track down through history. The belly of bronze being then Greece. The, the iron legs being Rome. And then that mixed... Well, that's a whole other story for another time. But we can look across history and go, fulfillment. We get it. Why? Because we have the context to look back and know. We have the info that they did not have that Daniel himself didn't have. And so, so the angel said, Daniel, conceal these words. Seal up the book until the end of time. In Revelation 22, verse 10, John is told at the end of his revelation, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. In other words, John, now you have everything that's needed to understand this prophecy. 
Because we are living, gang, in that very time. The prophets and the righteous men of old had no context for understanding the old prophecies. Not like we have today. We read Scripture and we have the blessing of the lens of history. We can look back, we can compare, and we have some understanding that was not had in those days. Things could not be revealed until now. Gabriel even gives Daniel two examples. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 12, he says two things are going to be very different when this prophecy is finally able to be understood. Two big differences. Number one, world travel. In Daniel's day, the world was not traveled from one end to the other. That area, that region, was even thought of as the world, but was not traveled much beyond. And yet, in Daniel 12.4, the angel said, many will go back and forth. The word back and forth there is sut. Sut in the Hebrew, and it means Rome. Many pe- not Rome is in the country, but Rome is in wandering. Many people will roam. And the implication is there will be global travel by the time, at the time when these words will be understandable. It's interesting. Uh, Sir Isaac Newton one time wrote regarding Daniel's prophecy, he said, if this is to be, if people are actually going to be roaming the world, well, man must eventually be able to travel at speeds of up to 50 miles an hour. <laughs> French atheist philosopher Voltaire replied about that. He said, oh, the doddering fool, every scientist and thinker knows that if man were to travel over 40 miles per hour, his heart would stop. <laughs> He says, how does Newton think this prophecy of Daniel is going to be fulfilled literally? King, I got a ticket for going over 50 miles an hour just last week. I did. It used to be a 50 area and they changed it to 40. Real nice. Nobody told me. So that's what the orange flags were for. Not to mention the fact that Sammy Hagar wrote a song back in the 80s, I just can't drive 55. So we know things have progressed. You know, a little bit. But in Daniel's day, world travel was impossible. Couldn't even be imagined. Not so today. There's another thing Daniel said. I know we're in Matthew 13, but stick in Daniel with me for just a minute. Daniel 12.4, in that same verse, he also says, Knowledge will increase. Literally, the word there is rabah, increase, multiply. Knowledge will just be this multiplying thing, this amazing, fast-moving... In other words, not only will we have world travel, but there would be world knowledge. Here are some facts that might surprise you. 85% of all scientists who have ever lived are alive today. That's how much knowledge is going on right now. People studying and searching out things. 85%. Over 1,000 new major books are published every day. And well over 3,000 plus pages of new information are printed every second. So those of you students in school, guess what? Good luck catching up. That's why when I walk into like a Barnes & Noble, I literally, I, 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 it blows me away. I don't know where to start. I go in and just go, I'm just going to go home and read Israel My Glory because I can track that pretty good. You know... It's incredible the constant knowledge that we have. In fact, if you were to graph knowledge, that is known information, if you're going to take all the known information we have and and try and lay it out and compare when it came and how much knowledge we actually have accumulated on earth, it looks something like this. Let me give you a visual. From the beginning of time all the way to 1848, it would look like on a graph about an inch. From 1848 to 1948, over the next 100 years, you could add three more inches to that. 
of accumulated knowledge. So it started to rapidly increase about that time. From 1948 to 1988, it would go from that four inches worth of knowledge, it would move out to be 100 feet higher than the Washington Monument in terms of accumulated knowledge. That's a total of 7,860 inches in 40 years. And that only gets us to 1988, which predates the Internet. Is knowledge increasing and multiplying in our day unlike ever before? People say, well, Rick, why do you think we're living in the end times? <laughs> One verse, Daniel 12:4, world travel, world knowledge. People roaming all over the earth. When I was a kid, it was a rare thing to get on an airplane and fly somewhere. When I was a kid. Now people do it all the time. You don't even think about it. Oh, I've got to get online and get my airline uh, miles, get my ticket, you know. Incredible. And yet these are the times in which we are living. 747s and the internet, the prophets of old and righteous men had no context to understand these things. How do you explain a 747 to a prophet like Daniel, who's still riding on papyrus? Hard to understand. That's why the Bible says in Hebrews 11.39, all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. How so? In their knowledge. In their understanding. They would not know everything that had to be known to get these prophecies. And that's why I believe we live in the most exciting time in all history. For those who say, I wish I could go back to the first century and see what it was like for the church then, I say, man, forget that. Think about now. We are living now on the precipice of the end, of the very end of all things. We are living at a time where Jesus literally, because of everything the Bible says, could be here any second. Nothing else needs to happen. I've shared this before. Everything prophetically that needed to happen before the second coming of Jesus has happened. So right now we're in overtime. And we're just waiting. The mystery of Christ game, the mystery of Christ has been revealed and is being played out in us today, the spiritual kingdom. Colossians 1.26 says, The mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations has now been manifested to His saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. What is that? Christ in you. Christ in you is the mystery. What Paul calls the hope of glory. We are living the mystery game. Now with that in mind, back in Matthew 13, Jesus goes on from here. After saying why he speaks in parables, and he explains the parable of the sower and the soils that we did on Sunday. But in verse 24, and we'll go on, he now tells another mystery parable of the mystery kingdom. Watch this, verse 24. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But, while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares, they became evident also. The slaves of the landowner landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Well, do you want us then to go and gather them up? He said, No. For while you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. A reminder again, all seven of the parables in Matthew 13 are kingdom parables. 
But here's where I want you to see a distinction. I hinted at this earlier. Whenever Jesus uses the phrase kingdom of heaven, he includes something shocking. When Jesus talks about what he calls the kingdom of heaven, it's always different than when he's talking about the kingdom of God. He'll use those two phrases specifically. Kingdom of God leaves something out. There's a subtle distinction. Something that he adds into the kingdom of heaven. But before I explain, let me read the next two parables because they say the same thing. He reiterates this parable of the wheat and the tares. Verse 31. He presented another parable to them, saying the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all the other seeds, but when it is full grown, it becomes larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them, saying the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks or measures of flour until it was all leavened. So, what is included in the kingdom of heaven that is absent in the phrase kingdom of God? Three simple, but again, shocking things. When Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven, the spiritual kingdom that is at work among us right now, there are tares, there are birds, and there is leaven. And all three are negative things. Now this may be a different way of understanding these parables than they've been taught to you before. Let me explain this. In the kingdom of heaven, what is present that will not be present in the kingdom of God is sin. Right now, in the spiritual kingdom that we are living, sin is present. Does it shock anybody? Does anyone have trouble believing that there is sin in the church? Okay, I see several of you just laughing because of course there's sin in the church. Look at us. I'm in the church. Which means obviously obviously there's got to be sin in the church if I'm here. And if you're here, I know what's going on. (laughs) There is sin in the church. There are tares among the wheat. There are birds in the branches. There's leaven in the dough. And all three of those things are negative things, not positive things. This kingdom that we're living in. Ironside said the kingdom of heaven is not heaven itself. As used in this part of Matthew's gospel, the kingdom of heaven, that phrase speaks of a mixed condition of things, such as has prevailed in Christendom ever since the beginning of the present age. Now, Christendom just refers to Christianity everywhere. Anyone who says or claims, I'm a Christian, is part of Christendom. But everyone who says or claims to be a Christian is not necessarily part of the church that will be saved. The church is both larger and smaller than we ever thought it was. The church is larger because there are going to be people in heaven that will shock you that they're there. You made it? <laughs> and it's smaller because people we thought would be there will not be there. Because there are tares among the wheat, birds among the branches, leaven among the dough. And by the way, that explains such historical atrocities by the church as things like the Inquisitions and the Crusades, or any time something was done in the name of Christ that was not of Christ, it's because there is leaven in the dough, birds in the branches, and tares among the wheat. These things are all present and accounted for in the church. Let me explain these. Leaven. Leaven is referred to nearly a hundred times in the Bible. Seventy-five times roughly, plus or minus a few, in the Hebrew Scriptures, and another roughly 25 times in the New Testament. And every single time leaven is referred to in the Scriptures, it is always a picture of sin. 
always. And yet what's funny is people will come along and they'll look at the parable of the kingdom of heaven looking is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. And they'll say, oh, that's the growth of the gospel. The leaven is the gospel. No, it's not. The leaven is always a picture of sin. It is the growth of sin in the kingdom. Not the positive we thought it might have been. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6, Paul said, Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, so you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul takes that Hebrew picture of pulling leaven out of the dough, And he says, that's what we need to strive for as the church. Getting the leaven out. Because the reality is, as Jesus said, the leaven is present. And it spreads. And it's in and among the kingdom and the church today. What about the birds? Well, birds portray evil. Not just because of what they do on my notes and my stand. Birds are portrayed as evil, especially in the context of these parables. Well, how do you get that? Well, think about what Jesus just said. What did He compare the bird to, or what was the bird the picture of in the parable of the sower? Matthew 13, 19, He said, The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in the man's heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The bird is a picture of Satan in the parable of the sower. And so when Jesus comes along and begins talking about the mustard seed, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field, smaller than all the other seeds, but when it's full grown, it's larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree. So that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And the birds, that is not a positive thing. I've even heard teaching about that. I'm probably getting ahead of myself. Yeah, I am. Just understand that the birds portray evil. Birds and leaven both represent something in the growing spiritual kingdom of the church that is not good. What about the tares? Tares are a weed that look a lot like wheat. In fact, if you don't know much about the difference between the two and you were to look at the two, you might assume both are stalks of wheat. Tares that will grow up in a wheat field, you can't necessarily tell the difference. They're the same color. They're the same shape. They're the same fragrance as wheat. But they have no grain heads. And that's the distinction. There's no fruit. There's nothing growing of any use. They take up space. The tares will soak up vital nutrients in the soil. And they can make you violently sick if you eat them. Furthermore, they're typically unidentifiable until harvest time when the wheat heads do emerge. And you can say, okay, that's wheat and that's a tear. Early on, it's very hard to tell the difference. Listen as Jesus explains this parable. Verse 36. He left the crowds and went into the house... And his his disciples came to him and they said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. And the field is the world. Not Israel, you notice. The field is the world. And he says, As for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. He's talking about people. Suddenly in this parable, the seed is not the word of God. The seed are believers in Jesus, sons of the kingdom, and they are non-believers, but they are mixed in with the believers. It says, verse 39, The enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. 
So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. Interesting. Jesus has given us something amazing. In these three parables, He defines all of them by by defining the one. He gives us a clear context and understanding for the other two. Again, the mustard seed parable. The mustard seed represents unnatural growth. A fast and a rapid growth and the birds themselves, again as some liberal theologians believe, the birds themselves are not representative of the Baptist bird and the Presbyterian bird and the Methodist bird and the Christ the King bird and the bridge bird. That's not what the, the birds are not all these different denominations sitting there in the branches. The birds gang are false teachers and false prophets that make their way into the church. They're a negative thing and they are present in the church today. Just talking with Cheryl about this earlier. I I go online to ChristianBook.com, a resource that I love to use and has a lot of good resources on it. And I am shocked at the number of books that are in that sales thing, in that company, and their heresy. Right there. This uh, this should be a place that I can go as a Christian and find good teaching that is sound biblical teaching. And there are books, fiction and nonfiction book books that I know for a fact are heretical, but they're being sold right along with the Bible. Because false teachers and false prophets, gang, they are roosting in the tree of the church. They are in and among, and guess who put them there? The enemy. Satan's put them there. Why not? If you were the enemy, wouldn't you want to get some people behind enemy lines onto the other side working within? Trying to disrupt and destroy from within? That's exactly what Satan did with the early church, by the way. When the church first started, it was growing, it was wonderful, it was fantastic, and then all of a sudden you get to about Acts chapter 5 and something horrible happens. Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit. Satan realizes that the persecution from without is only making the church grow, so he plants some people within to cause the church pain and hardship. The leaven in the dough. Again, it is not, as some liberal commentators suggest, it is not the gospel because leaven portrays sin. And you can't suddenly shift and say, except in this one, two and a half verse parable, now leaven refers to the gospel. It doesn't. In the same way that leaven gets in and begins to move and expand, so sin gets into the body of the church, the kingdom of heaven, the spiritual kingdom on earth. In fact, you know what's interesting? After some 20 centuries of gospel preaching in the world, there are more unbelievers than believers in the world today still. Well, if the leaven was a picture of the gospel, then why hasn't the gospel reached masses of people that it has not apparently yet reached? Leaven is not the gospel. Leaven is sin. Nowhere, by the way, does Scripture tell us to expect to see the world converted before the return of our Lord Jesus Christ to rule and reign. There's nothing in the Bible that says the world will be converted and then Jesus will come. And someone might say, well, what about Matthew 24.14? Good question. Matthew 24.14 says, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. The simple answer is this, gang. The gospel will be preached to the whole world, but it doesn't say the whole world will be converted. It says, yeah, the word will get out to the whole world, but it's not going to change the whole world. 
before Jesus comes again. There's, by the way, quite a bit more to that statement that, that Jesus made in the Olivet Discourse, and we'll talk about that in a future study, um, unless Jesus comes first, which again is fine with me. But in the case of the parable of the leaven, the three pecks of flour, sometimes translated three measures of meal, is certainly is certainly a, a sin that's mixed in. And the leaven distorts and inflates unnaturally and sinfully. And then the tares. The tares, as Jesus points out, are sons of the evil one. Jude gives a really apt description of the tares. I can just read this to you. It's in Jude chapter 1, verse 14. There's only one chapter in Jude, so it's just Jude 14. Let me read this to you. I'm sorry, Jude 4. Jude 4. It says, Certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons, who turned the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Verse 12 goes on, Jude says, These are men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. Well, what's a hidden reef do? Well, if you're in a ship, you crash on it. You don't see it coming until it's too late. These are hidden reefs in your love feasts. And they feast with you without fear, caring only for themselves. These are clouds without water. Oh, they look religious. They look nice and puffed up and and impressive, but there's nothing inside. There's no Spirit of God dwelling within. These are those who are carried along by the winds. They are autumn trees without fruit. They are doubly dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam. Wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Verse 14, it says, It was about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment upon all, and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. It says in verse 16, These are grumblers. Finding faults, following after their own lusts, they speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. And Jesus says these tares, this leaven, these birds are in the church. They are in the kingdom of heaven. They are part of it as it grows. The good news is they are also reflective of the end of the age. So even as we recognize that there is evil planted within and growing alongside Christians who just want to know Jesus. Even though we recognize that, we also recognize the more we are aware of these things, the more clear it is we're at the end of the age. Well, what do we do with them? These tares, these birds. What do we do with the leaven? Expose them? Right? Fight them? Rip them right out of the pews? Tear them out of the church as a clear warning to other people? Don't miss this. As slaves of the landowner in the parable, and the landowner is Jesus Himself, we are not supposed to tear out the tares. That's not our job. It's not our business. It's not our worry or concern. Verse 29, Jesus said, No, for while you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. And this is a profound, profound truth. We may think we're doing Jesus' business by standing for righteousness and kicking people out of the church right and left when they're not standing the way we think they should stand. But Jesus says, do not tear up the church in your attempt to tear out the tares. 
Because as you tear out a tear, you're going to rip up a heart of a believer. You're going to rip out wheat. There are going to be people innocent of that offense who are torn out as well. And how many of you have heard of or know of or have experienced in a church split situation It's not so much the people who are left gathered together and angry at those who left, or those who left angry at those. It's those in the middle who get tossed out and stop going to church and stop worshiping altogether because they are so hurt by it. Tearing out the tares, and wheat gets plucked out as well. That's how people get hurt. Unsuspecting wheat growing in the field. Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.23, he said, Refuse foolish and ignorant speculation. Let me me put a head on that. Refuse foolish and ignorant speculation. Refuse to speculate what's going on in someone else's life. Just refuse to do it. I I can't give the example, but I know of an immediate example we were just talking about earlier today. I'm aware of something where a person is, there is speculation being made about a person. And you know what? There's no evidence and there's no proof to it. Refuse that. Don't do that. Don't look at someone else and go, well, because, because he comes in and he's a little disheveled and unshaven, I think he's having a hangover. I'm pretty sure he is. Don't say, oh, because they come driving up in a Jaguar, <laughs> they've got to be ripping it off from somewhere. Don't look at other people in the church fellowship and speculate about possible sin in their life. Well, they're this way. Well, she's this way. Well, I've seen him, and I'm sure he came walking out of the brown lantern in Anacortes. I know he's an alcoholic. Do you? Well, I'm concerned enough to pray with several of my brothers about it. When prayer becomes gossip, you know. We need to get together and pray for so-and-so. No, you need to go to so-and-so if you've got a concern or a problem. You need to go to the heart. If you really love your brothers and sisters and you have a concern for them, you go to them. You don't speculate about them. Refuse that, knowing that these speculations, they produce quarrels, Paul says. He says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach. Which means we're spending more time in the Word than we are in the circles of gossip. Patient when wronged, and with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And then they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. And there's another little nugget of truth for you. When people are sinning, it's not because they're horrible bad people, it's because the devil has his hooks in them. It's because the sin nature has been tantalized and every one of us are just as capable of every sin that we are so opposed to. And so don't judge and don't speculate. Our task is to speak the truth in love and to be patient with those who may even in their ignorance wrong us in some way. Well, Rick, what about church discipline? (laughs) I went back and listened. About a year and a half, two years ago, I did a couple of messages talking about church discipline. And I went back to listen to make sure it wasn't too harsh. And I I was up on a soapbox, pretty high up. Not quite as high up as a piano, but I was standing up pretty tall. And and I was listening to this going, would I preach that sermon today? Some of it, yeah. Some of it, I probably, in terms of truth, would speak again. But the way it was presented, there are a couple moments where it's like, oh, wow. Chill out, Rick. Slow down a little bit. I'm telling you this because the more... I age, 
the more I recognize that church discipline must be handled with great care and patience. We've got to be loving first. We've got to seek first the wisdom of the Lord. Far too many people are torn out with the tares in the name of church discipline. doesn't mean that we don't respond when unrighteousness is going on. When there is sin, when there are issues. But how did the Lord deal with sin? He wrote on the ground. He wrote in the heart. Remember Sunday, He looked at the woman in John 8 and He said, Listen, is there anyone here to condemn you? I'll tell you what, I don't condemn you either. Go your way and stop sinning. Don't sin anymore. See, forgiveness gives us the power to do that. To walk away from sin. Well, verse 41. Verse 41, so then Jesus says, The Son of Man will send forth His angels. He's explaining now, if we're not to do all this tearing out the tares, how is it going to happen? Son of Man will send forth His angels. They will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks. And all those who commit lawlessness... He'll throw them into the furnace of fire, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hmm. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Come back to that in just a second. Verse 43, Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. See, the kingdom of their Father only has the righteous. The kingdom of heaven has both. Kingdom of their Father, it's only the righteous. He who has ears, Jesus says, let him hear. By the way, did you notice whose angels are sent out to reap back in verse 41? Who sends out the angels to reap? The Son of Man. Another clear indication of the deity of Jesus Christ. The angels are His to send and to call and to say, you go do this. They are under His authority. Well, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. And by the way, Jesus is not saying, he's not saying the kingdom of heaven is worth selling all you have. He's not selling it as if he was on the QVC or the, the home shopping network or something. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all he had and bought it. Now, I'll just tell you right now, verses 44, 45, and 46, I want to save until Sunday. We're going to talk more about it. But Jesus turns to the positive side of the kingdom coin here, presenting a valuable treasure and a valuable priceless pearl. We'll talk about those on Sunday. Now, Jesus finishes out these parables by returning to the theme of the mixture of good and bad in the current kingdom of heaven. Verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and they gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. Watch this. He says it a second time. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping obviously implies or speaks of the sorrow that people will have when they realize they have been cast out. Gnashing of teeth is interesting to me because that indicates bitterness and resentment and hatefulness. You gnash your teeth at someone you're mad at. This gives us proof positive, gang, that judgment doesn't necessarily produce repentance. And I've said before, you can open the lid of hell after two billion millennia and there will still be people in hell cursing God. There will still not be repentance there. People say, how could God condemn someone to all eternity to burn in hell? That seems so unfair. You know what? 
By the time a person is there, they are beyond point of repentance. They will not repent. All they will do is weep and gnash their teeth angrily because God wouldn't accept their goodness, their righteousness. Verse 51. And Jesus says, Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, Yes. Let me paraphrase. Do you guys get what I'm telling you? I can see the twelve apostles standing around going... I don't think they got it at all. They said yes. Most of this, I think they're still going, I don't... Why why do you say that, Rick? Because after the resurrection, Acts chapter 1 verse 6 says, they came together and they were asking Him, Lord, is it now at this time that You're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? (laughs) We talked about the kingdom. I told you in parables, I revealed the mystery about the kingdom of heaven and it's not the kingdom of Israel. That's on hold. But they're still asking because they didn't quite get it. They got some of it. That's some revelation. Some of the mystery. But they're, they're still going back. Did you see that part of the movie? Because I didn't catch that. What happened there? They said it was real at the end, but I still... And that's me at the end of most mystery movies. You know, I'm sitting there going, Who is that guy? Was he that guy? Oh, she was with that guy. Oh, and I think that's what we've got here with the apostles. They, they weren't sure. They say yes. I don't think it all got in. In fact, I know it didn't get in until ten days later. That is, ten days after they asked Jesus, are you restoring the kingdom now? And He says, it's not for you to know these things. Ten days later, the Holy Spirit, boom, comes on the apostles at Pentecost, and they got it. Then they understood the kingdom. Then their eyes were opened to see with Holy Spirit eyes and to understand that this, this kingdom is a spiritual thing that's happening now. And they went ballistic for the kingdom, didn't they? And they spread it in an amazing way. Well, here's the potency of the parables, gang. The parables get planted in the soil of the heart. And if there's any receptivity in that soil whatsoever, they'll start to grow. And it's happening tonight. Some of us tonight, and I'm including myself in this, there are still things that we have to understand in these parables. But they're planted. You've heard them. They're in. And they're going to begin to grow. And you're going to be able to draw off them. In fact, Jesus says in verse 52, and we're going to stop there tonight. Verse 52, Jesus said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and things old. Now these scribes that Jesus is describing in yet another little parable, he, he talks about, I think he's talking about the twelve. saying, you guys, you're like scribes who are heads of households. You're not really sure right now, but, but you're going to come into understanding and you're going to start to draw out of this things new and things old. And in fact, they would. John, in writing his gospel, would draw out Old Testament truths with a, with a new glow to them. And, and John later in the Revelation would give some fantastically new things along with so much of the old. Peter would do that in his letters. And the other guys as they came along would begin to draw out old things and new things. Jesus seeds His teaching into these guys. It gets into the hearts and it begins to work its way out. And the good news is I believe the same is true for all disciples of the Kingdom of Heaven. For you and me as well. And the more we are in the Word, the more the Word of Christ gets into us. When we begin to find ourselves 
enabled to do something we didn't know we could do before. Bring out old things and new things of the kingdom to share with those around us. Father, we thank You so much for the blessing of being soil. Our hearts are soil before You. And Father, as we prayed on Sunday, there, there are some weeds there and there are some rocks. Some of us have some really hard, packed down places on our hearts that, that need to be softened and tilled. Lord, we pray that as You soften the soil of our hearts and plant these very parables, these kingdom truths, these mysteries, that revelation will come. Father, may, may we be blessed like Your disciples, like the apostles, to bring out old things and new things. To have a greater and an increasing understanding, even as You increase our faith, Lord Jesus. These are some awesome things. May we carry these and grow with them in Jesus' name. Amen.